This morning, I want to ask you, are any of you the grammar police? Now, now be honest. Some of you are sitting among your family. Raise your hand if you're the grammar police. I'm making you raise your hand because I want your family to be able to acknowledge or be able to see that you're acknowledging you're the grammar police. I can be the grammar police from time to time. I am very adept at correcting people when they say things the wrong way. And it's not necessarily an enduring or endearing, I should say, characteristic. But I want you to consider for a moment how we often use our words incorrectly. In particular, we will reference products by brand names rather than by product names. Let me give you an example. For example, what would you call this? Now, some of you right off the bat call that Kleenex. But in reality, what you have pictured is tissue. That is facial tissue. Kleenex is a brand. Facial tissue is the product. But sometimes we get so accustomed to a particular brand that we call the product and all forms of that product by the brand name. Another example would be this. What would you call that? Some of you right off the bat might say Band-Aid. And while Band-Aid is a very popular brand of this product, not all forms of this product are Band-Aids. These are called adhesive bandages, not Band-Aids. And let me give you one more example just for fun. This is not necessarily a crock pot. This is a slow cooker. Crock-Pot is a brand of slow cookers. But we have become so accustomed and, and, and that brand has become so popular that that's the uh, typical term we use in reference to that product. And so we have this tendency to refer to brands or to refer to products by brand names when a particular brand becomes so popular. Other examples would include referring to lip balm as chapstick or cotton swabs as Q-tips, or permanent markers as Sharpies, and plastic food containers as Tupperware. All of those are brand names for products. Now, here's my point. We don't just do this with products. We have a tendency to utilize language, even in religious jargon, that is not entirely correct. We become accustomed to using certain words or phrases, even in Christianity, regardless of their rightness. For example, people often say separate and apart from the Lord's Supper as they try to distinguish between the communion and the collection. Now, the sentiment expressed in that statement is correct. However, the use of the words separate and apart are repetitious and unnecessary. If you are separate, then you are automatically apart. Yet this phrase is frequently used because we have become accustomed to using it. Or maybe you've heard someone pray, guide, guard, and direct us. Once again, that is a phrase, that is a statement, that is a request being made in prayer that is very much appreciated. 
However, the words guide and direct are essentially synonymous and therefore unnecessary as a repeated phrase. Yet this phrase has become so popular and so comfortable that it is frequently used. And as a result, we've become accustomed to that phrase. Another commonly used phrase in religious circles is we're going to church. This statement is not repetitious, it's not unnecessary, but it can be theologically misleading. And today we're going to examine what the church is. Because during this unique situation in which we're unable to uh, assemble together at a specific physical location, I think it's important for us to be reminded of what the church is and what the church is not. But to do this, we're going to have to engage in a little word study for a moment. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. I want you to see something that is said in Matthew chapter 16 in particular. It's in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asks his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, to that question by declaring, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And upon hearing Peter's confession, Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 that on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Most of the time we consult this passage, we consult this passage for the purpose of focusing on the constructor. And this is an important passage because it identifies who built the church and who owns the church, and that individual is Jesus. I will build my church, he said. But today I want our attention to be not on the constructor, but on the construction. In other words, let's not focus so much on who did the building, but on what he built. I want us to examine what is meant by that word church in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18? Now the Greek term being translated in this verse is ekklesia. In ekklesia, it refers to an assembly or a gathering. It is used more than 110 times in the New Testament. It is translated church or churches in the vast majority of its appearances, but if you were to look ecclesia up in a Greek-English lexicon, you're typically not going to see it defined simply with the term church. Instead, you're going to come across a definition like the following that is taken from Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the Bible. Ecclesia means a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place or assembly. And the Bible actually acknowledges this understanding of ecclesia. You see, if you turn to Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, you'll see this reference made to the nation of Israel. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, the nation of Israel was referred to as an ecclesia. This occurs during Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. And he spoke about Moses and said in Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, he said, this is the one, referring to Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. 
So Stephen referred to Israel as a congregation of people. This was a fitting term for for a group that was chosen by God to be his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. And so in this instance, in Acts chapter 7, the term ecclesia is used, but it's not used in reference to what we know as the church. It's used in reference to the congregation of Israel. But later, in Acts chapter 19, Ecclesia is used again. It's used in reference to a mob. In Acts chapter 19, an Ephesian artisan named Demetrius, who made household gods, was losing business due to Paul's teaching against idolatry. So he instigated a riot that resulted in, in, a, in a large crowd gathering in the city's theater. And we're told in Acts chapter 19 and verse 32 that the, the assembly was in confusion. That mob, that gathering, was called an assembly. And then in verse 41 of Acts 19, we're told that the town clerk dismissed the assembly. That word translated assembly in, in, in both uh, verse 32 and verse 41 is ecclesia. The exact same word that is translated church elsewhere in Scripture. But in this instance, in Acts chapter 19, ecclesia is not a reference to the church as we know it. And it's not a reference to the congregation of Israel. It's a reference to a secular assembly of people who were called out together to assemble for a protest. You see, ecclesia is not technically a religious term. It does not specifically mean church. Instead, it is a reference to an assembly or gathering of people. And in the Bible, it is used in reference to both a secular assembly and a religious assembly. But our English translations tend to use the word church to distinguish the Christian body of believers from all other assemblies. So while the nation of Israel is called a congregation and the Ephesian protesters are called an assembly, those who are a part of the body of Christ are called a church. And that brings us to the next term we really need to look at, the word church. The English term church really refers to a building used for worship. Let me explain what I mean. Initially, after the start of Christianity, after the, the, the institution of the church, Christians did not have specialized facilities for their assembly. You can read in Acts 2 how they met in each other's homes or a specific section of the temple courts. They did not have a designated place just for assembling for worship. However, during the reign of Emperor Constantine, Christianity became acceptable in the Roman Empire as persecution waned. And more prominent people joined the body of Christ. It became possible for the church to acquire dedicated facilities, just like the Jews with their synagogues and the pagans with their temples. And over time, the facilities came to be identified as kuriakos. That's the Greek term, which means belonging to the Lord. Kuriakos only appears twice in the New Testament. 
Once in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20, where reference is made to the Lord's Supper, the supper belonging to the Lord. And it also appears in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, where reference is made to the Lord's Day, a day belonging to the Lord. But nowhere in the New Testament is Kyriakos used in reference to a building or a location. But that's the term that came to be generally associated with buildings that were dedicated as places of worship for Christians. Based on that Greek term, Kyriakos, the Germanic language began referring to these facilities as Kirch, spelled K-I-R-C-H-E. Scots began referring to them as a Kirk, spelled K-I-R-K. And by the time Middle English came around, that's the language that was in existence when the first English translations of the Bible were written. The Middle English language used the term church, spelled C-H-I-R-C-H-E. And today, if you investigate this term in a dictionary, if you look up the word church in an English dictionary, you're going to find a definition similar to this. This is a screenshot from Merriam-Webster's dictionary from this morning, actually. And if you notice, the very first definition offered for church on this, or in this dictionary is a building for public and especially Christian worship. That's because the history of the word church is bound up in a building. See, the word church... The word church is not a translation from Greek, technically. It's really a substitution for the Greek, because ekklesia does not mean church. It means an assembly, a gathering, or a congregation. Church is the word originally applied to the building used for Christian worship that was eventually extended to the Christian community as well. Now, it's not my goal to get us to quit using the term church. In fact, I'm certain that you will hear me continue to use the word church, not only in future conversations, but throughout the remainder of this lesson. The purpose of examining these words is for us to understand exactly what it was that Jesus said he was going to build back in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. And there are two primary implications of this word study that, that indicate what Jesus was building. First and foremost, Jesus built a people, not a place. Ecclesia never referred to a specific place, only a specific gathering. So when Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. He was not saying, I will build my place of worship. Instead, he was saying, I will build my gathering of people. This was evidenced in the first century ecclesia by the fact that they did not meet in a single location. I've already alluded to Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, where we learn that they met in the temple and in the homes of individual members. Later, we learn that the ecclesia met outdoors, such as at a place of prayer by the river in Philippi in Acts chapter 16 and verse 13. And on occasions they met in, in, in public 
meeting spaces, such as the case in Acts chapter 19 and verse 9, where they met in the hall of Tyrannus. See, the first Christians demonstrated that the church is the assembly, not the facility, by where they met. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to Luke chapter 8, because Luke's description of what happened to the church after Saul initiated his persecution also helps us understand that the church is a people and not a place. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, we are told that on the day Stephen was martyred, a great persecution arose or began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The important thing to note from this passage, from this particular detail, is that the church was scattered. In other words, the church was forced to disperse from Jerusalem because of the persecution. I want you to think about this. A place, a location, cannot be scattered. But a people can. In Acts 8, if you skip down to verse 3, you'll see this, this statement as well. It says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I think there's an important detail here as well. Luke's description indicates that Saul did not go to church buildings to locate the church. And instead, he went from house to house confronting individuals and families. Now, why did Saul do that? I think it's because Saul understood the church is a people, not a place. Now, why does that distinction matter? Why is it important that we understand the church, for lack of a better word at this point, that the church is a people and not a place? I think it's because when we make the church location-oriented rather than people-oriented, we tend to care more about being at the building than being in each other's lives. And when we make the church location-oriented rather than people-oriented, we tend to become internally focused, focused on keeping the doors open rather than being externally focused, focused on keeping the mission going. And when we make the church location-oriented rather than people-oriented, we tend to become or we tend to stop, I should say. We tend to stop searching for people out there and start waiting for them to come in here. And when we make the church location-oriented rather than people-oriented, we tend to gauge faithfulness based on presence at the building rather than participation in the kingdom. Here's my point. Jesus constructed a people rather than a place. And understanding that helps us keep the kingdom in its proper perspective. The kingdom is a people, not a place. And today, as we're unable to meet together at a physical location, at a place, at a building, we need to be reminded that Jesus built a people, not a place. But that's not the only thing we learn about what Jesus built from Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. From this study of ecclesia and church. We also learn that Jesus designed his people to be an organism, not 
an organization. In the New Testament, several metaphors are used in reference to God's people. Jesus compared them to a herd of sheep in John chapter 10 in the first 10 verses. He also compared them to a vine in John chapter 15 and verse 5. John identified the body of believers as Jesus' bride in Revelation chapter 21. And Paul frequently referred to them as a body in passages like Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That may not mean much to you at first, but when you consider the common denominator between a sheep, a vine, a bride, and a body, you realize that they are all animate. They are all alive. And that is why the church must be viewed as an organism rather than an organization. An organism has life. An organization does not. You see, the primary difference between an organization and an organism is that the latter requires you to be connected to others. An organism requires you to be connected to others. And that means the church, again, for lack of a better word, is not simply an organization in which membership is placed. It's an organism in which membership is practiced. Let me explain what I mean. We can approach church with one of two mentalities. We can approach church with a organization mentality or an organism mentality. When it comes to being a member of an organization, whether it be the booster club or the PTA or a country club, there are three primary responsibilities. One, you have to attend the meetings. Two, you have to keep the rules. And three, you have to pay your dues. As long as you do those three things, you will likely be considered a member in good standing. In 2018, I was a member in good standing with Planet Fitness. I never missed a payment. I followed all the rules. And even though I only entered their facility approximately one-tenth of the days I was a member, they still viewed me as a member in good standing because they're just an organization. I am currently a member in good standing with my HOA. I've paid all the dues. I've, I've obeyed the guidelines. I've even filled out my proxy card for association's annual meeting. I've never met a member of the association's board. I have not attended a meeting in person. And I've made no meaningful contributions to our neighborhood, but I am a member in good standing. And the point is, that you can be a part of an organization without ever having to develop an intimate or accountable relationship with other members of the organization. And far too many of us approach church with an organization mentality. And that's not the mentality we're called to have. We're called to have an organism mentality. Now think about an organism. An organism doesn't measure membership like an organization. An organism measures membership by participation, by functionality, by reciprocity. Think about your physical body for a moment. Could you lose a member of your physical body and not know it? Could a member of your physical body suddenly go missing and you not miss it? For most of us, does a member of our physical body hurt without you feeling it? See, your body is intricately connected. No child ever came home from school missing an arm and you ask, where's your arm? Oh, I must have left it in my locker. That doesn't happen. 
That's why Paul compares the church to a body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Take your Bibles out and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want you to read with me what he says in verses 14 through 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This was a long enough passage that I didn't want to put it on the screen. So grab your Bibles on your phone or on your, uh, or, or your physical copy in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll start reading in verse 14 and go down through verse 20. There Paul writes these words. He says, The body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. You see, the point I think Paul is trying to make is that an organism has attachments. An organism has connections. An organism is intertwined. And what happens to one part of an organism affects all the other parts because they are members of one another. And that's why Paul said in, in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see, Jesus did not build his ecclesia to serve him in isolation, to exist independently or to operate individualistically. He made his ecclesia an organism that is dependent on each other and devoted to practicing membership, not just placing it. Now, you may be wondering, what's my overall point here? What am I trying to get to? Here's my point. At this time, as we're unable to assemble together in person, we need to be reminded that, that Jesus created us to be an organism, not an organization. And that means our interconnectedness matters. We are able to worship God despite our distance because the church is a people and not a place, but we don't need to get comfortable with our distance because the church is an organism that has attachments, not an organization that's detached. You see, I think there's probably some people right now within our congregation who are sitting here watching this service, engaging in this service, participating in this service, and they're thinking, man, this is how we ought to do church all the time. I can stay in my pajamas, I can sit on my couch, and I can just listen to Kyle and mute him if I want to. I don't have to talk to anybody. I don't have to see anybody. I don't have to interact with anybody. But that's not the way the church was made. And even though we can do this, this virtual worship service together, we can do this because the church is a people and not a place. But that's not the ultimate design of the church. I look forward to the day we get to be back together. I look forward to the day that I'm not staring at a computer screen while I speak, but I'm looking in the faces of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I look forward to the day when we get to sing collectively together and praise God as one voice. Do you realize just how great that Sunday is going to be when we get to assemble together again at the building? Not because that's the church, but because we're together. 
and we are an organism. Let me close with this. I've shared this with you before, but I want you to think about sequoia trees today. These trees can grow to an average height somewhere between 167 feet to 279 feet. The tallest sequoia tree tops 300 feet. And these trees, they can have an average diameter of 20 to 26 feet around. Needless to say, these trees are massive. But here's what's so surprising about sequoia trees. They have very shallow root systems. In fact, their root systems only descend about 12 to 14 feet into the ground. Now, how do these massive trees with trunks 25 times taller than the depth of their root system, how do they avoid toppling? It's because sequoia trees grow in groves. And they expand their root systems horizontally for two to 300 feet. And what ends up happening is their roots get entangled with each other. And that entangling of the roots allows them to hold each other up when the winds blow. And like these magnificent organisms, God's people exist in groves. God's people grow in autonomous outposts scattered throughout the world that we typically call churches. And it's their interconnectedness that keeps them from toppling when storms arise. And right now, we're going through a pretty massive storm. I bet there's none of us that expected a day would come that we couldn't hold an assembly together in person. We're facing a massive storm right now. And for some of us, that storm may include getting sick at some point. And though I pray it doesn't happen, that storm could even include losing a loved one from this pandemic. We're going through a storm, and even though we can't see each other face to face, even though we can't shake hands and hug, we can still support one another. Because that's what the church is. An organism that's interconnected, holding each other up when the storms blow. I know we can't field an invitation the way we normally do. But I want you to know that if you're struggling right now, maybe you have physical needs going on as a result of this crisis, maybe maybe emotionally and mentally you're drained, maybe spiritually you're at an all-time low, I encourage you to reach out to one of our elders, one of our ministers. Even though we can't be together in person necessarily, we are still with you in spirit. And we will help you in whatever way we possibly can. Reach out to your care group leaders. Reach out to your brothers and sisters in Christ and let's hold one another up during this difficult time. If you have any reason that you need to respond in any way, don't hesitate to give me a call. Don't hesitate to email. Don't hesitate to reach out to, to anyone because we're here for you even though we can't be physically here for you. I hope these words are a source of encouragement today and it is our prayer 
that this time of distance can end sooner rather than later.